The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word this evening. As is already noted, Pastor Holst is sick, so we will not be continuing our study in the book of Exodus this evening. We'll actually be going back to the book of Genesis and studying together Genesis chapter 16 this evening. Genesis chapter 16. And we'll be taking the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, And may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked upon me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Sur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitudes. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have here, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Beard. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You may be seated. Pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together as we study this portion of his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come again to your word. And we pray even this evening that you would speak to us powerfully through it. Send your spirit 
to sink it deep in our hearts and in our minds, to use it for the convicting and the converting of sinners and for building up believers unto salvation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, something tells me that I don't, I don't need to really remind you how difficult a task it can be to wait. Waiting is hard. It's a difficult thing. It's remarkable, really, that it's something we do all the time, and yet prolonged periods of it can almost drive someone crazy. It's amazing if you just go and study for just an afternoon or so the the physiological and the psychological, perhaps even the spiritual, effects of prolonged periods of indefinite waiting upon human beings, what kind of things you'll see. You see, people, when they are put in these conditions where they have to wait with no end date in sight, perhaps they're uh, wanting to hear back from a a medical test that's been taken, or or perhaps they're waiting on a college acceptance letter, or perhaps it's even a, a greater period of time than those things, they begin to, at times, spiral, as it were, out of control. They become stressed. They become anxious. And these things can even bear out in physical side effects from these prolonged periods of waiting. So remarkably, it's not only the case that waiting can be hard, but waiting can actually be dangerous. Particularly if you find yourself in a situation like Abram and Sarai found themselves in here in Genesis chapter 16. You see, Abram and Sarai have been waiting at this point in the text for, it appears, a number of years. They have been waiting on the promises that God has made to them in the past. And because they have been waiting for so long, they have it seems, gotten tired of waiting. You see, they've gotten tired of waiting upon God's promises and they have decided, as we're going to see, to their own calamity to seek to speed up the process, to do an end run, as it were, around God's timing and to seek to accomplish what has been promised to them by their own means on their own schedule. And as we look at this text this evening, we, we learn something about the danger of becoming impatient with God's word and particularly with God's promises. What we see here this evening, positively if you will, is that God's people need to learn to wait upon God. We could say it another way. We need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. We need to learn to trust God in His Word, to to believe that the God who makes promises is a God who also keeps promises. He is a God who always is true to His Word, no matter what it looks like around us, no matter how long it seems to take Him to get around to fulfilling those promises. He is a God who is faithful to do so. We need to learn to wait on God. And yet, really what we see here in the text is not a positive example, but it's a negative example. You see, we see the danger of not waiting well on God's promises. 
But what we see in the text is really this, that our impatience with God's promises will lead us to improprieties. And these improprieties will have inevitable consequences, not only for ourselves, but even for others. That's what I want to see, uh, show you this evening from the text of Genesis 16. We're going to see, as the text develops, it does so in, in three uh, movements, if you will. As the text begins, we're going to examine, really just in verses 1 and part of verse 2, the impatience of God's people. And as the text continues from there, we're going to see in verses 2 through 4, the impropriety of God's people born out of their own impatience with God's promises. And then the rest of the chapter really is showing forth to us the inevitable and really the tragic consequences that result in the impropriety born out of their impatience with God's promises. And we'll see that then in verses 5. Through 16. And as we see these things demonstrated before us, we must learn, friends, to patiently trust upon God's promises, to faithfully obey his word, so that we might receive blessing from his hands. Well, let's begin then by considering first the impatience of God's people with God's promises. We see that then in chapter 16, verse 1. It's necessary as we begin uh, this text to set the text in context, as it always is. But in particular, in this case, it's very important that we understand something of what has come before. You see, chapter seven, or 16 starts off with, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bore him no children. Which is a much more striking statement if you put this text in the context of chapter 15. If you remember back in chapter 15, Abraham has already raised this apparent problem with the promise that God has made to him, to God himself. He has asked God, well, well you're going to bless me, you've told me that, but, but, but how is it going to happen? Eleazar of Damascus is, is my only heir, I have no physical seed. How is it the case that what you have told me you will do for me will come to pass? How is it the case that a man with no child will be the father of nations? All the way back in chapter 12, God has been speaking to Abraham as he called him, as it were, out of the Ur of Chaldees, out of Gentile paganism, and called him to follow the Lord. He has already there promised Abraham to make him into a great nation. And here we find ourselves, having heard this promise and having seen it reiterated, and even seeing God in chapter 15 make a covenant with Abraham, which is really a remarkable thing to consider. Think about what happens there in chapter 15 as God condescends to make a covenantal promise with a man. He cuts animals in half, and he walks through them, as it were. Demonstrating what? Demonstrating that if he does not fulfill his end of the bargain, this will happen to him. The God who created the heavens and the earth has taken to himself this self-maledictory oath that he would cease to exist, would die, if what he said didn't come to pass. Of course, 
That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, that his word is sure. That he is a God who is who he says he is, and he does what he says he's going to do. And he shows forth to Abram there in a most remarkable way in the the ancient customs of the day, in the most striking, in the most certain way that he can, that he will bring about the promises he's made to him. He will make him into a nation. He will give the land that he sojourns in to his children. They're glorious promises. And yet all the while, as, as this is all going on, the reader of Genesis has to have in the back of their mind that nagging question, that, that nagging statement, which is first introduced to us, actually, all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, that Sarah, Abram's wife, has no child. She's barren. She's barren. And so here we see Abram and Sarai having had the promises of God reasserted to them in this most striking of ways in Genesis chapter 15. And yet still wrestling with the question of Sarah's barrenness. They're still trying to figure it out, aren't they? How is it that the Lord will do what he says he's going to do? And what we find is that they have become impatient with the Lord. They become impatient with the Lord. It's implied, but it's certainly there. They have lost patience. In particular, Sarah has lost patience for God. And what does she do because of that? Well, she begins to hatch a plan, doesn't she? We see that as the text continues. We see mentioned in verse 1 that she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And we see that Sarah develops this plan. She says to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's funny how she says that, isn't it? You can almost hear her displeasure with Yahweh. The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go into my servant, she says. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And what does Abraham do? He listens to the voice of Sarai. And so Abram, having lived, it tells us, ten years in the land of Canaan, took Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, and he went into her and she conceived. Impatience. Impropriety. You see what's happened here? Sarah and Abraham have gotten sick of waiting on God to open the womb. So they've decided to make God's plan happen, not using his means, but using their means. It's interesting here. There's a few things that you, you may read over very quickly, but, but are very, very important. We note over and over again, actually, in this text, we hear Hagar described as an Egyptian servant. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? 
You can think for yourself of the irony of the situation, really, if you're a reader of the Pentateuch, if you're an Israelite who knows the history of Israel. You're looking here at the the father and the mother of the nation of Israel. And who do they have captive in their household? Well, Well, they have an Egyptian. It's ironic, really. But there's something else that's ironic and important about Hagar's Egyptian descent, and that is that it's already been established, really, in the book of Genesis at this very early point that there is a theme that runs, really, from Genesis through the rest of the Pentateuch, that God's people often fall into the trap of looking at the seeming barrenness of God's plan for them and turning to the seeming fertility and the seeming blessing of the Egyptians. We can think about it, for instance, as we've seen it back in Genesis chapter 13, whenever Lot and and Abram are are sitting uh, discussing they're going to divide up the land and how they're going to go and, and settle in various places. And Lot, ironically there, looks across the Jordan Valley, that is, by the way, the area where Sodom and Gomorrah are, and he says this, he says, wow, it's like the garden of God, it's like the land of Egypt. And he picks that spot, and he goes there, and the text says, and parentheses if you have an ESV, this is before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, he's looking, as it were, towards that Egyptian fertility. We'll see it again in Genesis whenever times of famine come up. It's already happened once. Abraham goes to Egypt for salvation. We'll see it, of course, most famously at the end of the book where the people of Israel seek to get away from the barrenness, as it were, of the land of Canaan and flee to the Egyptians for salvation. And, of course, most importantly, we'll see it over and over again in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers as the people of God complain about the fact that God has liberated them from the Egyptians and brought them into such a terrible situation in the wilderness. What do they do? Well, they desire to go back. They don't like what God has planned for them. But when they look at Egypt, it looks, it looks pretty good. And here we have an appearance of this theme. We see the barrenness of Sarah and the potential fertility of this Egyptian servant. And so what do they do? They choose the Egyptian option, as it were, like God's people were prone to do. And they commit this act of impropriety. Abraham takes her, and he lays with her, and she bears a child, as we're going to see It's also interesting to note, and it is difficult here to see this in the English text, but it is remarkable and important nonetheless that we note it. If we were to look at the Hebrew text of this passage and compare it with the Hebrew text of Genesis chapter 3, you would see something really remarkable here in this little section of the text. And maybe you can even hear it as I read it. You see, Sarah, what does she do? She, She... She takes Hagar. She took Hagar, the Egyptian, and she gives her to Abram, her husband. 
And you see what's happening here. Abram listens to the voice of his wife when she comes up with this plan. You can hear the echoes vaguely in the English, more clearly in the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 3. You see what's taking place here is a fall. It's very intentional what the author has done here. It's exactly the same verb and noun structure, actually, in the Hebrew text of Genesis chapter 3. What the author is doing here is he's dropping breadcrumbs for us. He's giving us, by way of this echo to Genesis 3, a big warning sign, really. He's saying, what's taking place here is not good. And he's given us a warning about what's about to take place. Just as that act in Genesis 3 when Adam hearkened the voice of his wife and she gave him the fruit and he take it and he partook of it and it led to the destruction of all mankind, so there will be tremendous consequences for this action, this impropriety. But before we look at the consequences that flow from this act here, I think it's important for us to consider how prone we are to feel and to act just like Sarah here in this text. I mean, let's think about it. Let's be honest. If you're sitting here this evening, I'm sure you can think of many promises in the Word of God that you struggle to believe. And maybe you're sitting here this evening and you're saying, well, I know the word of God teaches me that God will never leave me or forsake me. And yet here I sit, even this evening, feeling deserted by the Lord God Almighty. And maybe you sit here wondering to yourself, well, God has promised that his church will grow, that it will never be defeated, as it were, by the kingdom of Satan, that indeed it will be victorious in this age, and yet you look around yourself and you have to ask yourself the question, is that really true? Because from where I sit, it doesn't look like it. And you can so easily, I can so easily become frustrated, can become impatient, can become even doubtful of God's word, of his promises, of his faithfulness to his people. How often, friends, do we find ourselves thinking exactly like Sarai? Sarah is a a godly person, really, in the estimation of the New Testament. We have many, or at least a few, instances where she's pointed out as someone who's worth emulating. And yet we see here, Even God's people at times can become impatient, can become frustrated with God. And that frustration can lead us to what I sometimes have called fair-weather faithfulness. You know, we trust the Lord. We love the Lord. We cling to the Lord. We celebrate the Lord. We praise the Lord. When the Lord does what we want Him to do, in our time, in our way. And yet, friends, how often is it the case that God's ways are far beyond and above anything we could have ever imagined? God does things that make us 
puzzled that make us think to ourselves, what in the world good could come from this? And yet he is a God who has spoken forth to his people that everything he's doing in this world is for their good and indeed for his glory, even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it doesn't look like it. That feeling that we have, that frustration that we have, it can cause us, I think, friends, to do exactly what Sarah does here. I was thinking about that this afternoon as I was preparing the sermon, doing a little last-minute preparation as this sermon came to me quickly. I was thinking about the fact that it's really easy for us, I think, as Shiloh, to sit here this evening and, and to think, you know what? I trust the Lord. The building is full. The bank accounts are full. We're not hurting. We're in a season of blessing. It's easy in some ways, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, well, of course, we, we, we believe that it's the ordinary means of grace that grow the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's easy for us to say right now, isn't it? It's easy to say when you have a full building, when you have a full parking lot, where you have kids everywhere, where you have people who are desirous to join the church, who want to plan a church. It's easy to say now, but friends, there may come a day. There may come a day where it's not so easy to believe that. There may come a day where we'll be tempted as a congregation, as individuals, to to think like Sarah. You know, what Sarah has done here is she's taken this Egyptian servant and she's giving him to her husband. This is not an unusual thing for the ancient Near East. We can find all sorts of laws written, for instance, in the city of Ur to to regulate how this sort of thing should take place. All Sarah is doing is is employing uh, the, the, the contemporary means of making a family expand. All she's doing, really, in her own mind, potentially, is she's adopting the best practices of the ancient world to seek to accomplish the goals of the kingdom of God. That's all she's doing. It would be easy for us to do that. It would be easy for us to look at what I'm doing right now and say, well, really, this is kind of, this is kind of foolish. Why stress preaching? Why stress the sacraments? Why stress prayer? Why stress those things that God has given us in his word? Why don't we introduce all sorts of other practices? Why don't we learn a little about marketing? Why don't we do something that will really make the place grow? That would be basically, in some ways, what Sarah's doing. Adopting the ways of the world to accomplish the means of God, or the the, the goals of God, rather. And friends, as we're going to see, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. You see, we must be content to accomplish God's goals by God's means in God's time. We can't try to cut corners. We can't try to adopt the ways 
of the world for the sake of the accomplishment of God's will. You will accomplish something if you do that. But it won't be the goals that the Lord has for his kingdom. It's something we should all be aware of, I think. But as the text develops, we see how this all plays out. And it doesn't go well, does it? We see here several consequences of the actions that have taken place. We see first immediate consequences, and then we're going to see lasting consequences, as it were, later. First, as we look at verses 5 and 6, we see what happens here, and I'm sure none of you have ever experienced anything like this in your home, right? Immediately upon this mistake being made, what do Abraham and Sarai do? Well, of course, they do what a Christian man and wife should do, right? They, they repent to one another. They say, you know, this was my fault. I shouldn't have done this. You know, we, we can work this out together. No, of course not. What do they do? They play the blame game. They immediately start pointing fingers at one another, don't they? Abraham's blaming Sarah. Sarah's blaming Abraham. And, of course, who gets the worst end of the deal? It's Hagar. Listen to what? Sarah says to Abraham, may the wrong done to me. Of course, she's referring there to that contemptuous look that Hagar gave to her after she became aware that she had conceived. May the wrong done to me be on you. And what does Abraham say? Hey, behold, your servant is in your power. You do to her as you please. The family is fractured here, isn't it? Dispute, disagreement at Hagar. Hagar's kicked out. Now, it's interesting. We see the immediate consequences, really, of, of, of the sin here is to destroy, in many ways, the, the, solid, the, 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 uh, the strength of this family relation. But interestingly, and remarkably, really, before we, we go on to see the lasting consequences that this is going to have for the nation of Israel, we find ourselves in verses 7 through 10 or so, really 11, looking at a passage which is full of grace, full of grace for Hagar. Now listen to what happens here. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. You note later she's going to make it clear that this angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. You note that in verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. This is probably the pre-incarnate Christ who encounters her here. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarah, Where have you come from and where are you going? And she tells him that she's fleeing from her mistress. And the angel, he says something that can strike our ears, I think, remarkably harsh. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. It's not exactly the advice we would probably give to a woman who had to flee the home because of potential violence that's being done to her. But he says, return to your home. He says, return and submit to your mistress, the one who's treated you harshly. But, but, but then he says something else. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. 
And the angel of the Lord tells her there, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael, the name of her son, it has this idea that the Lord hears. That's what he's saying here. Name him Ishmael, because the Lord has heard you in your affliction. Now again, I want to point out to you for just a moment that if you step back from this text, you've seen... You can see some more irony here. Think about what's taking place here. We've already noted that here we have Hagar, the Egyptian, who is the slave to these two, mother and father, as it were, of the nation of Israel. But here, what's happened? We have the Egyptian slave to the parents of Israel who ventures out of slavery into the wilderness because of the harsh dealings of her master with her. And then what happens? And then she meets the servant of the Lord, or she meets rather the angel of the Lord, and God hears her affliction. Think for a moment of the book of Exodus as we've been studying it. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? God hears her affliction. And what the text is telling us here is something that it's going to be made even more clear to us in the book of Exodus. It's telling us very importantly and very significantly, even for us in our own day, that God is a God who even in the midst of trials such as these, in times where we are suffering, either because we have sinned or because of others sinning against us, He is a God who hears our affliction. He is a God who hears Hagar's affliction just in the same way in the book of Exodus. He will hear his own people's afflictions. And let me say to you here this evening, friend, if you find yourself here, and you find yourself beaten down, you find yourself oppressed in whatever way that might be. You find yourself afflicted. You find yourself, whether because of the lifestyle you've lived or what has been foisted upon you, sitting here this evening in a desperate condition, I want to tell you that what was true of God in that day is still true of Him in our own. He is a God, friends, who hears the cries of the afflicted. He is a God who hears the cries of sinners. And he is a God who has made a way in the person and in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, for sinners to come unto him and to dwell with him. It's remarkable that the Lord saw fit to insert this teaching here in the midst of this, this tragic this ugly moment in his word. It's remarkable. There's grace here. And yet as we continue, in verse 12 and following, we see that there are also more consequences. You see, what's good news for Hagar is not really good news for Abram and Sarai. It's actually not good news for the nation of Israel. You know what happens here? Uh, the, the angel blesses her. He tells her she's going to have this son. And he says here, and this is one great birth announcement, I have to say. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Put that on a card. You won't sell any. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against his kinsmen. 
You see, what the Lord tells us here is that, yes, he's going to bless Hagar. But that blessing that comes to Hagar, it's also going to be a lasting and enduring consequence and reminder for Abram and Sarai that they have committed a great act of impropriety against the Lord. And we're going to see in Genesis chapter 21 how this ends up. This inclusion of Ishmael here into the family is going to cause problems. It's going to be a thorn in the side for Abram and Sarai. And I think it's very important for us to realize here, friends, that sin will have consequences. Our impatience, our improprieties, when we fail to trust the Lord, when we seek to do God's will in our own way, even if we're aiming at something good, it will result in consequences, immediate consequences, yes, but perhaps lasting consequences, like we see here. Not only is Ishmael going to be a man who causes trouble in the household of Abram and Sarah, he's going to turn into a people who cause trouble for the people of Israel. Generations will feel the result of this act of impropriety. The consequences are lasting, and they are abiding. And you need to understand that. The Lord is gracious. We've seen that here, even towards Hagar. And yet that doesn't mean that we can sin with impunity and get away with it. When we fail to trust the Lord, when we become impatient with Him, when we commit sin against Him, We can be forgiven, yes, but sometimes those sins will plague not only us, but our children. Not only us, but but others. Now, we could think of examples of this all night long. I'm not going to do that. But it's important for us to see it here. The temporal consequences of this sin will reverberate through the history of the nation. And we need to understand the severity of what's taking place here in light of that. In light of that. We see there then that Hagar meets the Lord. And she, she says here, uh, she calls the name of the Lord who she spoke there, uh, who spoke to her there, you are a God of seeing. She says, truly she's seen him who licks after me. She praises him really. She Names this place, Bir Lahairoi, after him because of his goodness to her, because of his graciousness to this woman who had been so ill treated. And he visits severe consequences upon Abram and Sarai. It's a sober passage in many ways. It's an encouraging passage in many ways, but it's a sober passage in many ways. But what I want to leave you with this evening is really what I started with. And that is that we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we do not become impatient with the Lord. But we're going to see in the very next chapter. We're going to see reiterated again that the Lord is going to be good 
And he is going to fulfill what he has promised to Abraham. And it's going to take us until we get to chapter 21 to see the birth of the promised son. And yet, God still is faithful. Even though his timing is not ours, his timing is perfect. And we must be careful that our impatience with God's promises does not lead us down the path that we see here of committing improprieties, which will have these inevitable consequences, not only for us, but also for our children. And we must then, friends, cultivate patient trust in God's promises, which will lead us then as we walk as it were, by faith in his promises and not by sight in the circumstances that we find ourselves in at that moment will lead us to faithfulness to his word and blessing from his hands. Because, friends, waiting is much more manageable when you're waiting on a faithful companion, when you're waiting on a Lord whose word And promises are always true. If you can wrap your mind around that, you can learn to be patient. And you can learn to rejoice in the Lord's timing, even when it's not yours. It's my prayer that that would be true of all of us this evening. And as we walk, as it were, through this world on our way to our heavenly promised land. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that you have demonstrated for us, you have given us examples in your words, examples of faithfulness, Lord, and even examples of failure that we might learn from the mistakes of those in the past, that we might see how they walked before you, and we might emulate where they do well, and we might learn to avoid where they failed. Most of all, Lord, we praise you for your grace to us. And we thank you, O Father, that even though we are often impatient with you, although we are often prone to sin in the same manner as Abram and Sarah, yet you, Father, love us in the Lord Jesus Christ and have mercy upon us. And we pray, Father, that you would forgive our impatience and that you would cultivate in us uh, the fruit of the Spirit, that we, Lord, would be those who would love to serve you, who would trust you, and who would wait upon you, knowing, O Father, that you are the one who works all things together for our good and indeed for your own glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.